According to statistics, the average person walks past 36 murderers in their lifetime. Oh my God, she was murdered. It was a murder? Unlike in Hollywood movies, they're not easy to spot. Where is she, buddy? Where is she? The devil made me turn her into ashes. They seamlessly blend into our everyday lives, assuming roles as friendly neighbors, helpful colleagues, or even the person lying beside you each night. I wanted to be out of jail. I couldn't wait till I got out. I was in there with someone who was clearly psychopathic. Using investigative research and primary audio, Morbidology is an award-winning true crime podcast that shines a light on the darkest corners of humanity. Through our investigation, we have attained evidence which we are not releasing at this time, which leads us to believe Jolene is not alive. Tune in to Morbidology each week across all podcast platforms. You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Season 3 of DNA ID featured another slate of horrific murders that remained unsolved for decades, until forensic genealogy provided answers. Not all the answers were satisfying, and some of them felt very incomplete. But compared to years, even decades, of not knowing, even just learning the identity of the man who committed the crime feels like a victory. Quite a few of our Season 3 victims were slain in their own homes, the place where they should feel the safest. They were Jean Childs, Nancy Doherty, Viola Hagencord, Nadine Major, Sylvia Quayle, Nancy Benalik, Roxanne Wood, Christine Frankie, Edna Lockman, and Thomas and Alice Green. Other victims, all of whom were in their mid-twenties or younger, some even teens, were found discarded on roadsides after being dumped from their killer's vehicle, or found where they were attacked outdoors after being beset, apparently at random, in crimes of opportunity. These victims were Pam Maurer, Julie Fuller, Tawny McKinley, Heather Porter, Eve Wilkowitz, Susan Negersmith, Leslie Perlov and Janet Taylor, Carol Sue Kleber, Cheryl Thompson, Lisa Holstead, and Ellen Matthews and David Schuldes. Only Lee Rotatori does not fit into these two victim clusters, since she was killed in her motel room, and her murder is suspected to have been a planned hit. Now we have our killers. This season's bad guys ran the gamut from those who struck just once that we know of to some actual serial killers. Those in that latter category were Bruce Lindahl, Ralph Richard Howell, and John Arthur Gatru, all of whom had multiple homicide victims to their name. Lindahl was killed in the course of one of his murders, and Howell died young in a car crash. 
but Gautreaux was caught and convicted after forensic genealogy linked him to the Leslie Perloff case. By the way, he died in prison this past September. All three of those serial killers selected their victims, Pam Maurer, Cheryl Thompson, and Leslie Perloff and Janet Taylor, at random when they crossed paths with them. Thomas Dunaway, who raped and strangled 16-year-old Carol Sue Kleber, has at least one other known victim, a male drug-dealing partner whom he shot and left on the side of the road. Detectives believe he may have more victims, as he was arrested after fleeing Kentucky and setting his car ablaze. He wasn't a classic serial killer like the three I just mentioned. He acted impulsively and committed his murders in a disorganized, reactionary fashion. If he does have another victim or victims from his time on the run, he could be classified as more like a spree killer. Thomas and Alice Green's killer, their son-in-law's brother, Greg Payton, is sort of a unique case. He's believed to have killed the couple for money, although he also raped Alice. This is his only known homicide other than the additional one he committed when he killed his wife in a pre-planned murder-suicide. But he isn't known to have had any other victims, and I don't think we can consider him a serial killer. A lot of the other killers we discussed this season had only one known homicide victim, but a track record of violent criminal behaviors. These were Patrick Wayne Gillum, Andre Lapierre, John Petreca, and Lou Archie Griffin. Gillum had sexually abused a young boy and raped a woman in her own home in a case that foreshadowed what he did to Roxanne Wood. Lapierre, who killed Viola Hagencord, had another incident in his past where he was accused of attempted murder of a man. Petreca, Heather Porter's slayer, had raped several other women, including a 16-year-old he abducted at gunpoint. Detectives feel that he likely has other murder victims, as some in the same area from the same time frame fit his M.O., but they don't have DNA evidence in those cases. And finally, Lou Archie Griffin had done prison time for raping a 12-year-old girl. And then there are the rest of them, guys who, it seems, really struck only once and never did it again. Of course, this assumes that all the rape kits and other physical evidence collected from murder victims around the nation have all been retained, tested, and entered into CODIS, which we know is far from the reality. Stephen Simcak, who killed Nadine Major in her apartment as her child sat in his crib a room away, is one of the more perplexing. He stabbed Nadine to death with a kitchen knife, leaving it in her chest, and cut himself in the process, but he did not rape her. The motives for the killing are totally unknown. Simcak died at nearly 80 years old, leaving behind 17 grandchildren and a family that refused to believe that he had killed anyone. He had zero criminal record. The only clues to his homicidal tendencies were that he was a mean drunk and was violent to his wife, and he pinned and tried to kiss his stepson's girlfriend one time, but that was it. We do know that he stopped drinking abruptly in 1980, the year Nadine was slain. Any relationship between the two parties is completely unknown, and Simcak apparently kept his nose clean for all his remaining days. David Anderson climbed in Sylvia Quayle's bathroom window, and after shooting her as she lay in bed, raped and killed her in her front hallway. It's believed that he had watched her in the past and intended to rape her, and clearly intended to kill her since he shot her through the window. Anderson had an extensive record for burglary in his 20s. When he was arrested in his 60s, He was living a peaceful, quiet life with his wife of 26 years, who had no clue what he'd done. Another mystifying case is that of Nancy Benalek's killer, her neighbor, Richard Davis. 
Nancy was beset in her bedroom while she slept by the balcony-scaling Davis, who is believed to have watched her from his own apartment. She was stabbed so violently that she was nearly beheaded, but she wasn't raped. Davis didn't have much of a record, but was a known heavy drinker. He has no other known murder victims. The motive for Nancy's murder is unknown, and we can only guess that perhaps rape was on his mind, and he was scared off either by the noise the attack created or by the bloody crime scene and the cut on his arm. Then there's the child killer James Francis McNichols Jr., who abducted, raped, strangled, and dumped 11-year-old Julie Fuller. McNichols had a record for things like assault and domestic abuse, but nothing more serious. However, there are reports from family members of his sexual abuse of several of his sisters and possibly his own daughters. This guy was a pedophile and child killer who lived in Texas, Illinois, Colorado, Iowa, and Oklahoma that we know of. I'm categorizing him with the one and dones because that's all we know, but I'd put money on him having additional murders or at least sexual assaults of children under his belt. Tanya McKinley's killer, Daniel Wells, had a history of sex crimes, deliberately luring women to his vehicle where he could expose himself. But he has only one known murder, Tanya's. He told detectives he was high on coke at the time of the murder, and it made him do things he normally wouldn't do, like rape and strangle Tanya with a belt after hitting her on the head. He told detectives he was high on coke at the time of the murder, and the drug made him do things he normally wouldn't do, like rape and strangle Tanya with a belt after hitting her on the head. By the way, this is the second case I've covered in which the victims were bludgeoned with a simple kitchen cutting board. The first was Christy Mirak in season one. I guess these guys just made use of whatever was on hand. Michael Carbo raped and strangled Nancy Doherty when he was just a teenager, a student at her kid's high school. After that slaying, he went on to be arrested for two burglaries and was suspected of being a peeping Tom. But as far as we know, he's not believed to have killed anyone else. He lived peacefully in the same community until his arrest. Lee Rotatori's killer, Thomas Freeman, is believed to have been hired to kill her by her husband, Jerry Nemke. Freeman has no other known murders and most likely was a pawn carrying out a murder for hire motivated by money. If he hadn't raped Lee, we would never have known who killed her because Jerry Nemke saw to it that he wasn't around long enough to talk. Eve Wilkowitz was abducted, held alive, and then slain by Herbert Vincent Rice, who saw her walking from the train station late at night. Rice was a big drinker and general loser, with a record of petty crimes like DUIs, petty larceny, auto theft, and so on. But it's believed he never committed any crime nearly as serious as this one. Jean Childs was killed by a guy who solicited sex workers so often he got caught in two prostitution stings. But he was never known to kill anyone else. By the time he was arrested, he was a so-called hockey dad, living a quiet, normal life with his wife and kids. Ellen Matthews and David Schuldes were shot and killed by Raymond Van Uvenhoven, who was a known mean drunk and loner who never left his native region of Wisconsin. When he was arrested, he was an old curmudgeon living alone in a tiny rural town. The double murder he committed seemed so brazen that if he did it again, it's hard to believe he wouldn't have been caught. He was smart enough to pick up his shell casings, but not smart enough to use a condom. Christine Frankie was shot and killed and then sexually assaulted by Benjamin Holmes Jr., who had a low-level criminal record. Since he was offending in 2001 and afterwards during the DNA era, it seems likely that if he was responsible for other similar cases, we would know. 
Chris Joseph Larry Spielman broke into Edna Lockman's home believing she was not home and encountered her in the bedroom. He suffocated her with a pillow and by shoving pills down her throat, but if he hadn't raped her, he almost certainly would never have been caught because he never seems to have done anything like it again. He had an extensive record for burglary, but did not seek out locations to burgle with homeowners inside. This and several of the other cases I have covered make me wonder if these guys actually get turned on by struggling with and killing their victims. And when they act on their perverted impulses, they leave behind the evidence that will eventually identify them. I'm not sure how to categorize the accused killer of Susan Negersmith, Jerry Rosado. He was never prosecuted for her murder, and as a result, little is known about his criminal history and whether he has any other victims. As usual, in cases as old as the ones I typically cover, many of our killers were already deceased when they were identified. But it's always interesting to examine the ways they died and consider whether their deaths correlate in any way to the evil acts they committed in life. The prime example of this is Bruce Lindahl, who died at age 28 while actually killing someone, the epitome of karma. Nancy Banalek's killer, Richard Davis, died in his 50s of alcoholism. Child killer James McNichols died in his 50s as well, at age 52, of a heart attack. I'm surprised he had a heart at all. Ditto for Thomas Dunaway, who died of a heart attack in his 30s. Greg Payton killed himself and his wife with a gun when he was only 26. You have to wonder whether guilt or self-loathing was eating him up, or if he suffered from mental illness, or both. I just wish he hadn't taken his innocent 19-year-old wife out with him. John Petreca died of cancer, although at age 56 he wasn't technically young. Still, disease prevented him from living to a ripe old age. Same with Herbert Rice, although cancer got him at just 40. Thomas Freeman was murdered himself just months after his murder of Lee Rotatori, probably by the man who hired him, her husband. Violence begets violence. And finally, Ralph Richard Howell died in his 30s in a car crash. Overall, these guys don't make it into their twilight years, not even close. Only Stephen Simcak defied the pattern by dying at age 79 from respiratory failure and aspiration pneumonia. He seemed to live a completely normal life for decades after leaving a butcher knife in Nadine Major's chest. Now for the live ones. Quite a few of the killers we identified during this season of DNA ID were successfully prosecuted. This is because those criminals who have been identified by forensic genealogy and arrested alive have now made their way through the legal system and their cases resolved. Every one of the killers we discussed this season who was arrested after being identified by forensic genealogy was convicted of murder and sent to prison except one. Those convicted were... Raymond Van Ewenhoven, who died in prison soon after being sentenced after a trial and guilty verdict. Nonetheless, his appeal is pending before the higher court. Jerry Westrom, he's appealing his conviction by a jury at trial. I incidentally met a woman at CrimeCon who was on his jury. She told me that, for the jurors, the determinative evidence was the bloody footprint. It sealed Westrom's fate that the patterns of the skin of his gnarly feet were etched in Jean's blood at her murder scene. David Anderson was convicted after a jury trial. So was Patrick Wayne Gillum. Daniel Wells was arrested and charged in the death of Tanya McKinley. And based on the evidence and his confession, I'm 100% certain he would have been convicted if he hadn't hung himself in his cell. John Arthur Gutrue was convicted in Janet Taylor's case after a jury trial, 
and he took a plea in Leslie Perloff's case. As I said, he recently died in prison. Benjamin Holmes was convicted after a jury trial in Christine Frankie's case. He is appealing his conviction, too. Finally, two defendants pleaded guilty and skipped trials. These were Lou Archie Griffin and Chris Joseph Larry Spielman, who has too many names. Both of them had left their semen inside their victims, and they knew they were caught dead to rights. Michael Carbo was convicted after a jury trial and appealed. Interestingly, his appeal has gained some serious traction, and the Minnesota Supreme Court recently heard his case. Amicus briefs in support of Carbo's appeal were filed on behalf of the Minnesota Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers and by the ACLU. An amicus brief is a friend-of-the-court brief, sometimes permitted by the court to be filed by a group who has an interest in but is not a party to the case at hand. The ACLU's brief focused solely on the warrantless search of Carbo's DNA through the trash pull. Quote, The extraction and analysis of a free person's DNA constitutes a Fourth Amendment search, and the extraction and retention of DNA constitutes a Fourth Amendment seizure. End quote. The ACLU's position is that Carbo has a very strong privacy interest in his genetic information, and the government actors need a search warrant to collect and analyze it, even if they intended to use it purely for identification purposes. The ACLU also extended the argument to the abandonment doctrine, maintaining that it does not apply to the second step of analyzing abandoned DNA to extract genetic information. But the appellant himself, Carbo, and the other amicus brief also focused on another issue. I could not believe that it all came down once again to Brian E. You'll remember from my Nancy Doherty episode that Brian was the off-again ex-boyfriend who found Nancy's body. He was the prime suspect for years and years because he was in love with Nancy and he told her so in letters, one of which said, quote, There are also times I think about you and I get so mad I could wring your neck, end quote. Brian was at Nancy's house late the night she was killed. He had given her the earring pair of which one was missing. His hairs were found on her clothing in her bedroom, and a car resembling his was seen by witnesses parked outside on the night of the murder. Brian had been so beaten down by years of interrogations that he even started to doubt himself, admitting at one point that he'd wondered whether maybe he did do it. Anyway, Carbo's defense lawyer had petitioned the trial court to permit introduction of Brian as an alternative perpetrator and had presented 17 exhibits, including love letters and interview transcripts, tending to show Brian's potential involvement. After a hearing on the issue, the motion was denied. At trial, Carbo was not allowed to mention Brian or his infatuation with Nancy. His attorney tried to cross-examine Brian, a state witness, about his relationship with Nancy and the fact that he'd been the prime suspect for decades. The court disallowed this entire line of questioning. Carbo appealed on grounds that this was a mistake by the trial court judge. The amicus brief argues that Carbo's defense was hamstrung by his inability to present this viable alternative suspect. Quote, Appellant was denied the opportunity to cast reasonable doubt on his guilt when the district court denied him the ability to submit an alternative perpetrator, Brian E., for the jurors to consider as the person who may have murdered Nancy Doherty. In Minnesota, alternative perpetrator evidence is admissible when it has an inherent tendency to connect the alternative party with the commission of the crime. 
the trial court incorrectly focused on the sufficiency of the evidence to show that Brian was the actual killer to the detriment of Carbo presenting a complete defense. Allowing judges to weigh and exclude relevant exculpatory evidence from the fact-finder's decision-making process takes away this weight of evidence function from the jury and limits the ability of the accused to have a fair trial. Excluding evidence that shows the full picture of who Brian was and the circumstances leading up to Nancy's death, but allowing Brian to testify as a state's witness in a case that Brian could have been charged with himself, denied Carbo the right to present a complete defense. As with any question of fact, it is for a jury to decide the weight the evidence carries, end quote. Right. So in plain English, Carbo's team argued that Carbo had met the inherent tendency to connect standard required to introduce an alternative suspect in Minnesota, and the trial court judge should have left it to the jury to decide, after hearing about Brian, whether Carbo was guilty or not. I'm not sure how this appeal got so fast-tracked, but the Minnesota Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Carbo v. the state of Minnesota in October. The whole thing was live-streamed, and I was glued to it. Public defender Adam Lozo told the justices about the night Nancy died, that Brian had been at her house, he'd hugged and kissed her, and been turned down. He'd left and come back and let himself into the house. Lozo reeled off the rest of the list of things connecting Brian to the crime, even mentioning that Brian was one of the few people who knew Nancy was home alone without her kids and dogs that night, and that Brian suspiciously said in interviews, that he believed whoever killed Nancy knew her and was motivated by jealousy, just like him. Lozo told the justices, quote, The jury didn't hear this evidence because the court prohibited the jury from hearing it. This did not just prevent relevant evidence from being presented for jurors' consideration. It gave the jurors an actively misleading, mis- sorry, misleading representation of the state's key witness and his relationship with the victim. This erroneous ruling barred him from presenting relevant evidence to support his defense and denied him his right to present a complete defense and his constitutional right to confront witnesses, end quote. I have to say, Lozo did a terrific job, and it sounded as though the justices might have been swayed by his points. Justice Paul Thyssen reiterated the long list of circumstantial evidence linking Bryan to the crime, and then asked Assistant Attorney General Peter Magnuson, who was representing the state, whether that list of factors would have been sufficient to establish probable cause to charge Brian with the crime. Magnuson waffled, and Associate Justice G. Barry Anderson chimed in, saying, quote, Why isn't that enough? And if it isn't enough, I think there's a question about whether or not anybody gets to an alternative perpetrator defense, end quote. Another justice focused on the hairs matching Brian's that were found in Nancy's room, and queried why the jury hadn't been allowed to hear about that. I have to say, Magnuson was not impressive. He appeared ill-prepared and, frankly, complacent. He managed to get across his main point, though, which was that the trial court judge had exhaustively researched the alternative suspect issue, he had looked at every on-point case, and the standard for overturning his ruling requires a finding of abuse of discretion, which is an incredibly high bar. The court then turned to the other issue before them. Lozo argued that the collection of Carbo's abandoned DNA and the use of it to create the SNP profile used to identify him amounted to a warrantless search of his genetic information in violation of his constitutional rights, and therefore all DNA evidence must be suppressed. One of the justices asked whether it mattered that it was SNP testing that was done instead of traditional STR testing, 
The justice pointed out that the SNP testing was performed simply for identification purposes and not for the use of any of the data contained within the SNP profile. Lozo said it did matter because a SNP profile, unlike an STR profile, contains personal genetic information, such as information about Carbo's ancestors, his physical features and characteristics. Lozo told the justices that this wide range of information is very different from the limited, quote, junk DNA STR loci comparison used in the past. He pointed out that although this was not done here, the state could have chosen to access information on Carbo's genetic predispositions. Therefore, this all violated his Fourth Amendment rights, protecting him from unreasonable searches and seizures. The justices seemed very interested in this point and about the power of the SNP profiles in general. Another justice asked whether it mattered that the abandonment of Carbo's DNA was at a crime scene. Lozo said no, because it's not the abandonment of the material itself that's the issue, but the expectation of privacy in the genetic information contained within the material. Carbo never could have anticipated in 1986 that SNP testing would come along and his DNA profile would be captured. Therefore, he did not knowingly relinquish his privacy rights, and therefore did not forfeit his reasonable expectation of privacy. As one justice put it, he didn't anticipate today's fancy testing advances. In the state's response, Magnuson, of course, argued that Carbo had abandoned his DNA at a brutal crime scene, relinquishing his expectation of privacy and making it fair game, as upheld by limitless precedent. It all got very complicated, with the justices battering Magnuson about specific Supreme Court cases and their application here. Interestingly, one of the justices brought up Iowa v. Jerry Burns, which I'm going to get into in a minute. I have to say I hope I'm wrong, but I have a feeling that the justices are going to side with the appellant Carbo on the alternative perpetrator evidence. This totally remains to be seen, but his lawyer Lozo did a good job establishing that there was a lot of circumstantial evidence against Brian E., and it arguably satisfied the standard established by Minnesota case law governing the admissibility of this evidence at trial. If they do side with Carbo and rule that the trial court should have allowed him to present Brian as an alternative suspect at trial, then they will order a new trial. I don't see them siding with Carbo on the DNA testing issue because there's a lot of precedent establishing that abandoned materials are fair game, even without a warrant. But anything could happen, and I'll be waiting for the Supreme Court of Minnesota's ruling with great anticipation. It's worth noting, though, that none of Carbo's challenges pertain to the forensic genealogy. His trial attorneys had raised a big stink about having access to Parabon's records, and the company did have to hand over some to the defense. But Carbo's team clearly saw that there was nothing there that could hang their hat on. Finally, Andre Lapierre. He filed an appeal of his conviction three days after the jury's verdict against him was handed down. Here is the important language from the 4th Appellate District Division III's ruling earlier this year, quote, A jury found Lapierre guilty of the 1980 murder. The trial court imposed a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. On appeal, Lapierre claims the police officer's affidavit in support of the search warrant lacked probable cause. We find the facts about the DNA evidence and the other corroborating facts in the affidavit established probable cause for the search. As far as the closing argument goes, we find the facts about the DNA evidence and the other corroborating facts in the affidavit established probable cause for the search. 
We also find there was overwhelming evidence of Lapierre's guilt. Thus, we affirm the judgment, end quote. Okay, boom, bye, Lapierre, you're not getting out. Interestingly, the challenge Lapierre had presented to the probable cause affidavit was that it didn't sufficiently describe the investigative forensic genealogy conducted in the case that pointed investigators to him. The language of the affidavit was somewhat generic, saying that a SNP profile was developed and the FBI entered it into a database and was able to come up with Lapierre's name. The court said in its ruling, quote, While a more fact-intensive description of investigative genealogy may have been helpful, the level of detail in the affidavit was adequate, end quote. This goes to a current trend we're seeing among prosecutors of these kinds of cases, which is to keep the details of the forensic genealogy process out of court documents. While forensic genealogy provides an investigative lead, it never provides grounds for an arrest. Therefore, the consensus is that the intricacies of the forensic genealogy process and the family trees and the names of DNA relatives and reference testers are largely irrelevant to the court proceedings and do not need to be detailed in public documents. The judge in Lapierre's case clearly agreed that a simple statement that investigative genealogy was used sufficed. Okay, earlier I mentioned Idaho v. Jerry Burns. Burns, convicted of killing Michelle Martinko, a case I covered in season one, has been fighting his conviction tooth and nail. His appeal made it all the way to the state Supreme Court. That judicial body recently upheld Burns' conviction with a 5-2 to two ruling. Their ruling states, quote, After careful consideration of the case before us, we conclude that the Fourth Amendment did not require police to obtain a warrant before collecting the straw or before analyzing DNA on the straw to determine whether it matched DNA found on Martinko's dress. Although it is true that humans distribute DNA continually and unconsciously, the same is true of latent fingerprints. No one suggests the police would have needed a warrant to collect fingerprints from the cup that Burns left behind at Pizza Ranch, or to use those fingerprints to determine whether Burns was in Martinko's car on the night of her murder. We think the same is true of the DNA that Burns left on the straw, and that ultimately connected him with Martinko's dress. End quote. Burns is done. Just a quick update on the fate of one of the murderers I covered in season two, Alan Lee Phillips, who shot Annette Schnee and Bobby Joe Oberholzer. He decided he didn't want to be in prison any longer, so on February 27th of this year, he took a dive headfirst off a 30-foot-high prison walkway at the Arkansas Valley Correctional Facility in Ordway. Crowley County Coroner Gary Gibson announced that the 72-year-old Phillips did not survive the fall. There are many who believe he has additional victims, and now we may never know. Another update, this to a case I covered in Season 1, Lee Bictwee. You'll recall that Lee was a scientist who was working and living in the Maryland suburbs of D.C. in 1994 when she was attacked on her way home from the subway and raped and killed. A CODIS hit connected her case to the rape of another woman in the area in 1989, and police believed the same suspect also raped another woman in 1994. Montgomery County PD Crimes Division Cold Case and Missing Persons Detective Stephen Smugarevsky, known to one and all as Smugs, is the resident genealogist in that department. He's the one who performed the genealogy that linked Kenneth Day to Lee's case, and by extension, to the other rape survivor in CODIS. When Lee's case was solved, the MCPD stated that they strongly suspected Day in other crimes. Well, as Smugs was researching old newspaper files about the 1989 rape, which also involved an Asian woman walking alone from the metro, 
he noted a small blurb in the Washington Post Crime Watch column. Another rape had happened within the same week at 500 College Parkway in Rockville. It involved the same M.O. as the 1989 rape and as Lee's case. The assailant attacked the woman from behind and pulled her into the bushes. Smugs pulled the case file on this unsolved rape and noted that a swab remained in evidence. About half of it was left after early 2000s testing had failed to locate DNA. He sent it out for testing in late 2020, and in early spring 2021 learned that it, too, was a match for Kenneth Day. They now knew for a fact that Day had raped two women besides Lee Bictwee. It is believed that there are plenty more victims. Smugs noted that Day was actually named as a suspect in a series of four attacks that took place in one night in August 1989. All of these attacks happened in Day's own neighborhood, and he was driving his wife's car, but none of the survivors contacted by the police could identify him in a lineup because he attacked them all from behind, and there is no DNA evidence in these attacks. Smugs, whom I recently met at a homicide conference in D.C., believes that Kenneth Day is also likely responsible for a series of 1992 attacks in Germantown, Maryland, where Day was living at the time. None of these have remaining DNA either. Kenneth Day died in 2017 and will never be held responsible for any of these other brutal attacks on women. Okay, let's run through the new element DNA ID introduced this year, the Doe cases. They run the gamut from many unsolved murders to undetermined causes of death, to accident, to suspected suicide. Philip Kahn, who was found floating in the North Atlantic despite last having been seen leaving his home near Las Vegas. His cause of death could not be determined, and no one knows for sure what his real name was either because his birth surname was not Kahn. Genealogists and family finders have a theory that he was Nathan Ehrlicht, but that hasn't been confirmed. George Seitz was a World War I veteran who disappeared in the 70s. His remains were found in New York after a tip from a witness who knew the name of the murderer but not the victim. George was identified after a relative uploaded his DNA to an open-source database, and detectives were able to locate his living relatives. His killer is in prison after a guilty plea. Linda Carnes was only 15 years old when it is believed she ran away from a group home for girls. Her body was found in an unused landfill, partially dismembered, in Cheatham County, Tennessee. Her killer remains unidentified. Kathy Ann Smith, found on the side of a highway in Elgin, Texas, was possibly a victim of Henry Lee Lucas. He confessed to killing her, but then recanted. Lucas was in the area and at the same location at the time. Winston Maxey III, known as Frog Boy, was a teen found in a Coos Bay, Oregon Creek and believed to be a homicide victim although his cause of death was undetermined. He fathered a child before he left his home state of Idaho, and that child spent decades trying to track down her father. Now she's trying to find his killer. Donald Sigurd Hadlin Jr., Nogales John Doe, died of an accidental overdose in a border town motel room. He was found to be using a stolen identity, and forensic genealogy was undertaken to find out his real name. Virtually nothing is known about his life. Granby Girl was identified by forensic genealogy as Patricia Ann Tucker, whose body was dumped in the Granby, Massachusetts woods. Her husband, Gerald Coleman, was the last person seen with her and is suspected in her shooting murder. He died in prison. Claudette Powers, whose fully clothed body was found in a desolate area of San Diego County, was the victim of a homicide, but her cause of death could not be determined. 
Her identity was unknown until forensic genealogy gave her name back to her very recently. Her case may be related to that of a male homicide victim found several miles away around the same time who has yet to be identified. William Joseph Lewis, a.k.a. Jasper County Doe, who was a victim of serial killer Larry Eiler. William was believed to have been a hitchhiker. Eiler confessed to killing him and burying him in a field, but he claimed not to know his name. Forensic genealogy finally restored Bill to his family. Amanda Deza, the lady in the fridge, was murdered and stuffed into an abandoned refrigerator. Her death was attributed to blunt force trauma to the head. Her children never knew what happened to her until forensic genealogy identified her. Police are working to find her killer. Rosemount John Doe, who was identified as James Everett, just drove away from his wife and family one day and was found dead in a Minnesota railroad switching station states away from where he lived. His cause of death is unknown and was possibly natural causes or hypothermia. He had no identification on him, and it took the advent of forensic genealogy to inform his wife what had happened to him. Ruth Waymere, known as Millie Doe, was found in the Spokane River with her head, hands, and feet removed. Her skull was found several years later in a totally different location miles away. Her husband is suspected of being involved in her murder, but he's deceased, and we may never have answers in Ruth's case. Beth Doe, who was teenager Evelyn Cologne, was dismembered, put in three suitcases, and thrown off a Pennsylvania bridge. Forensic genealogy finally determined who she was after decades. Her boyfriend, the father of her nearly full-term fetus, has been arrested and is facing trial for her murder, although he is out on bail. Fly Creek Jane Doe was Sandra Morden, who disappeared as a teen in Amboy, Washington. She was found near Fly Creek about 40 miles from where she was living with no identification. No missing persons report for her has been located, and without forensic genealogy, law enforcement would never even have known she was missing. She's believed to be a homicide victim, and her case is unsolved. Christmas tree Jane Doe was found in a cemetery in Fairfax, Virginia. She had taken her own life and had taken steps to be sure she was not identified. Yet she was. Forensic genealogy identified her as Joyce Marilyn Meyer Summers. Opelika Jane Doe was a toddler named Amore Wiggins, whose skeletal remains were found in the yard of a trailer park in Alabama. Her father, who had custody of Amore, has confessed to killing her, but police are investigating the possible involvement of his wife, Amore's stepmom. One of the more famous Doe cases, The Boy in the Box, was solved by forensic genealogy. Investigators are still working to determine who murdered little Joseph Augustus Zarelli. Gacy victim 5 was finally identified as Francis Wayne Alexander, who went missing in the late 70s and was unearthed with the bodies of many other young men in the crawlspace of killer clown John Wayne Gacy's home. We know who killed him, and now his family, missing him for decades, has his remains back. Bedford Jane Doe was Kathy Alston, found buried under brush in New Hampshire. She's last known to be living in Boston. Her murderer remains unknown. And Margaret Federoff was finally identified after being known for decades as Woodlawn Jane Doe. She was a teen runaway who was violently raped, beaten, and strangled by an unknown assailant. Investigators are working to solve her case now that they know her identity. The Doe episodes were very popular this year, with communications from listeners relating to the Doe cases on par with those pertaining to the full-length DNA ID episodes. 
If you have a suggestion for a dough case you'd like us to cover, please reach out to us on the website, social media, or Patreon and let us know. Now for a legislative update. If you find this part boring, just skip ahead. But a few states now have passed legislation governing the use of forensic genealogy within their state, and many legal professionals anticipate that additional state legislation governing forensic genealogy is unavoidable and imminent. The most restrictive new law by far is that passed by the state of Maryland. The law became effective in October 2021 and includes the following requirements. Law enforcement must obtain a search warrant, i.e. judicial authorization, before undertaking a forensic genealogy investigation. The search warrant may be sought only as a last resort, in other words, when all other leads are exhausted. Furthermore, forensic genealogy may be used only to solve violent crimes or threats to public safety. If a forensic genealogy investigation is authorized by a judge, then it may be conducted only on those open-source databases that explicitly inform users of law enforcement access and obtain affirmative consent, i.e. opting in. And this part is really onerous. When collecting reference samples, law enforcement must obtain informed consent from potential testers. In other words, they have to be honest about what they're doing. Okay, no big deal there. But any covert samples may be obtained only with court authorization. Furthermore, reference sample collectors must be specially licensed members of law enforcement, and the whole interaction has to be recorded on video. If a reference tester declines to participate, law enforcement may not collect DNA from that person. The statute also establishes destruction protocols dictating how long samples can be kept by law enforcement. Labs and genealogists working on forensic genealogy investigations in Maryland must be licensed by the state. Now, consequences for violation of the statute include monetary penalties, but the statute does not provide a suppression sanction, meaning that if the terms are violated, it doesn't require that all the DNA evidence obtained in contravention of the statute is thrown out. Despite the stringency of the law, more than 25 cases have received judicial approval to move forward, and as far as I know, none have been rejected. Then there is the Sherry Black Law in Utah, which was signed into law May 17, 2023, and is considerably less stringent. Police may use forensic genealogy only in violent crimes or DOE identifications, and must work in tandem with their local prosecutors on any forensic genealogy investigations. Police may use only those open-source databases that explicitly inform users of law enforcement access and obtain affirmative consent, again, opting in. No arrest can be made without confirmatory genetic testing that shows that the suspect could be the contributor of the evidence, which I assume means STR testing. Okay, there's a pretty big update in the Susan Negersmith case. You'll recall that Jerry Rosado was arrested and charged with the sexual assault of Susan. He wasn't charged with her murder because of the years-long battle over the wording of her death certificate, pertaining to whether she was murdered or not. The Cape May County Prosecutor's Office charged Rosado with sexual assault rather than murder because they felt they could prove sexual assault given the DNA evidence, even if they couldn't prove that Rosado killed Susan. The lower court ruled that the statute of limitations barred Rosado from being charged with the crime and the charges against him were dismissed. Because at the time of the murder, the statute of limitations in effect for sexual assault was five years. Thanks to Susan, that law was changed in 1996. The Cape May County Prosecutor's Office appealed the lower court's decision to throw out the charges against Rosado. 
the New Jersey Supreme Court heard oral arguments on the issue in late November. I'm reading here from the terrific coverage in the New Jersey Monitor. Quote, Because Negrosmith was attacked six years before lawmakers changed the law, Rosado missed the cutoff by just one year, a stroke of luck for him that Gretchen Pickering, Cape May County Deputy First Assistant Prosecutor, called unfairness that necessarily results from arbitrariness. Ms. Pickering told the justices that the 1996 revocation of the statute of limitations in sexual assault cases was intended to permit DNA cases like Susan's to proceed regardless of time restrictions. The defense attorneys, of course, cited the ex post facto clause of the Constitution, which prohibits people from being charged through retroactive laws. But the state argued that the ex post facto clause is intended to prevent prosecution when so much time has passed that the defendant can't make use of witnesses and evidence that have expired or can't be found. It isn't an issue with DNA cases, the state told the justices. But on the contrary, the defense argued, quote, no court has ever held that there is a DNA exception to the ex post facto clause, and that's what's at issue here, end quote. Another defense attorney said, quote, what the state is looking to accomplish here undermines the very fabric of our criminal justice system, end quote. The justices asked the prosecutors why they hadn't charged Rosado with murder, for which there is famously no statute of limitations. Ms. Pickering had to admit, quote, in evaluating the evidence that we had available, there were questions as to whether we could proceed on the homicide charge, end quote. Of course, I don't know how the New Jersey Supreme Court will rule, but I suspect that they will side with the defense. Everyone agrees that Susan was denied justice, even though her case was the very reason New Jersey eradicated the statute of limitations on sexual assault cases. But everyone also agrees that the Constitution provides protections for victims and defendants alike, including alleged violent criminals like Jerry Rosado. Lastly, I want to update everyone on what's going on with the Idaho 4 case. This isn't a case I've covered, but it is unfolding in an incredibly public manner, and the issue of forensic genealogy is currently front and center. By Idaho 4, I'm referring to the stabbing deaths of Maddie Mogan, Kaylee Goncalves, Ethan Chapin, and Zana Kernodal, University of Idaho students slain in a rental home in November of 2022. In a nutshell, the FBI and the Idaho authorities used forensic genealogy to identify Brian Koberger as a suspect after finding unknown male DNA on a K-bar knife sheath found on the bed with two of the victims, Maddie and Kaylee. The forensic genealogy was not mentioned at all in the arrest warrant affidavit and only came to light when the state filed a motion for a protective order relating to the forensic genealogy materials. The defense moved to have access to all these materials, including the family trees and, quote, the name and address of all persons found to have sufficient sharing centimorgans with the subject profile to be identified as a match in the report created in the case, end quote. Note that this would require production of the names and addresses of potentially thousands of people. Anyone in either of the databases used by the FBI who shares even the tiniest number of centimorgans with the suspect DNA, which could extend to fifth or sixth cousins, would be included. The defense said it was trying to learn how many people the FBI, quote, chose to ignore during their investigation. The state opposed the motion, pointing out that the forensic genealogy was not the basis for or even mentioned in the arrest warrant for Koberger, and it amounted to just a tip. They argued, quote, The IG information, and that means investigative genealogy, is not material to the preparation of the defense. Defendant is charged with killing four people, not with being related to a particular person. 
The family tree built by the FBI merely pointed law enforcement to the defendant, and law enforcement followed that lead to develop the substantive evidence of guilt that was used for his arrest, and that will be used at trial, end quote. In November, the court ruled that Koberger had made his case showing that at least some of the forensic genealogy information is material to the preparation of his defense. Quote, the court finds that the defense is likely entitled to see at least some of the information from the IG investigation, even if it may ultimately be found to have no relevance to Koberger's defense, end quote. But the judge declined to order the state to just hand everything over. Instead, Judge Judge, yes, that's his name, decided to grant the state's request for an in-camera review of the IG information. His ruling states, quote, an in-camera review of the family tree and other information used in the IG investigation will help the court better determine the benefit to Koberger's defense in this case from disclosure of, of the identities of these individuals, which in turn will help the court to put in place the appropriate protective orders, end quote. As all my listeners know, the materials the defense is requesting are completely irrelevant to the question of Brian Koberger's guilt or innocence. The forensic genealogy processes used were simply a technique utilized to come up with a name that may or may not be a match to the DNA on the knife sheath. An STR DNA sample was taken from Koberger via a search warrant after his arrest. Quoting the court documents here, Traditional STR DNA comparison was done between the STR profile found on the K-bar knife sheath and defendant's DNA. The comparison showed a statistical match. Specifically, the STR profile is at least 5.37 octillion times more likely to be seen if defendant is the source than if an unrelated individual randomly selected from the general population is the source, end quote. The DNA was Koberger's, and that is the evidence that will be used against him at trial. The defense has no need to have access to the names in the family tree, the so-called genetic witnesses, or to see the methodologies used by the genealogist. The outcome proves that the method was sound. The DNA did belong to Koberger. How they got there does not matter for purposes of adjudicating his guilt or innocence. However, as the court pointed out, this is a case of first impression in Idaho. In other words, no judge in the state had yet ruled on the issue of disclosure of information gathered during a forensic genealogy investigation. So they had to look at case law from other jurisdictions. One of the cases they looked at was State v. Burns and that convicted murderer's appeal of his conviction in the murder of Michelle Martinko. I discussed this appeal earlier in the episode. In that case, the trial court permitted the defense to have access to some limited information concerning the forensic genealogy. In his ruling, Judge John Judge seemed to give a hint about what he anticipated would happen in this case. He said about Koberger's challenging of the forensic genealogy information used to identify him, quote, While such a challenge seems futile, since the IG information was not used to obtain the search warrant for Koberger's DNA and will not be presented at trial by the state, the court cannot say with certainty that the defense team could not make a successful challenge if given the information they seek, end quote. It's the court's use of the word futile that strikes to the heart of the matter. In other words, the defense may be entitled to look at some of this stuff in the interest of preserving the rights of the defendant, but we all know it's going nowhere. In fact, the judge stated in his conclusion, quote, The state's argument that the IG investigation is wholly irrelevant, since it was not used in obtaining any warrants and will not be used at trial, is well supported. End quote. 
The judge's in-camera review will permit him to balance the interests of the defense in having the materials required to prepare his defense and the state's interest in protecting the privacy of the genetic witnesses. Judge Judge ordered that the materials be handed over by the state and the FBI by December 1st. On that date, the state certified that it had complied. Now the judge will review all the information relating to the forensic genealogy prepared by the FBI, the Lata County Prosecutor's Office, and the lab that prepared the SNP profile, and determine what to keep from the defense, what to hand over, and what to redact and then hand over. Finally, it was so great to meet so many fans at CrimeCon on Orlando. I had a ton of fun chatting with people and was so honored that so many listeners took the time to stop by the booth and proud that so many of you told me that you have uploaded your DNA profile and opted in. We are hoping to be invited to CC 2024 in Nashville. If we are, we will share a code for 10% savings on your attendance badge, so make sure you take advantage of that once it becomes available. Happy holidays to everyone. DNA ID will return for Season 4 with all new episodes on January 29, 2024. Recently, I let listeners know about a new benefit available to them called an Abjack Insider subscription that's available through Apple Podcasts. An Abjack Insider subscription will give listeners ad-free access to every bit of DNA ID content published, both past episodes and future episodes. It will also give you benefits like early access and bonus content. Head over to Apple Podcasts and click on the DNA ID show page or the Abjack Entertainment channel to start a free trial. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free and help support the show in the process, please head over to patreon.com slash DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit the store at customizedgirl.com slash S slash DNA ID podcast. To contact the show, please email us at DNA ID podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID podcast on Instagram at DNA ID podcast on Twitter or on Facebook at facebook.com slash DNA ID podcast. Finally, if you want to visit our website, go to dnaidpodcast.com. You'll be able to get all the episodes of the show, leave comments on episodes that I can respond to, and you can even leave voicemails. You'll get all the latest news about the show and important updates. Find links to our social media, merch, and a lot more. It's really your one-stop shop for everything DNA ID. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime.